0: Next Generation Innovators is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Alicia Stevenson, Chief Commercial Officer at Future Women. We're working on a new season of Next Generation Innovators, a Future Women podcast in partnership with Oz Industries Entrepreneurs Program. And we'll be back in Rears soon. In the meantime, we have a special episode to share with you from when Brooke and I caught up with one of my favourite female founders, Jackie Savage. Jackie is the founder of Medcorp Technologies, a medical device company developing wearable technologies for the healthcare industry. She's also the founder of baby education product company, Meoplay. Jackie, welcome to Next Generation Innovators.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I was wondering if you could, for us, briefly summarise what your two businesses do and how, if at all, they intersect.
1: By way of background, uh, for those who are listening, I'm a a biomedical engineer by training. Um, I studied product design engineering and then went and specialized in biomedical engineering. Um, And that was very much the foundation of, of what brought out these two businesses. So in second year university, one of my close friends passed away from an infection while she was receiving chemotherapy treatment. Um, and that was a massive, massive moment for me. Um, in that moment, I was you know, obviously studying at the time, and I knew that this was an industry I wanted to make a difference in. And within a couple of months after her passing, we had another two close family friends pass away from exactly the same um, circumstances. And that very much led to me getting rather angry and disappointed in our healthcare industry and wondering why we're having deaths, not as a result of chemotherapy or cancer progression, but why are we having deaths as a result of infections? Uh, And for those who aren't that Um, you know, well-versed in in healthcare in that respect. Obviously, chemotherapy suppresses the immune system, so it makes patients highly susceptible to infections. And I continued doing a lot of research and learnt um, quite quickly after liaising with some of the heads of oncology at the hospitals here in Melbourne, uh, that infection was one of the primary causes of death for patients receiving chemotherapy, not cancer. And the only way in which we could prevent these deaths from happening was to enable early detection of these infections. And that was currently being done through methods of intermittent measuring of your temperature orally, which is incredibly inaccurate and relies on the patient to take their temperature when they feel unwell. And when you're having chemotherapy side effects, how you discern between having a migraine and feeling nauseous and having a fever is really challenging. So that was the biggest issue we had. So it was from that moment and I was 21 at the time uh, or 20 at the time. So that would have been 11 years ago. Now I knew that there was definitely a need for enabling continuous monitoring of core body temperature in, in a non-invasive capacity that was highly accurate, that we could enable the early detection of infection and at risk patients remotely, not in the hospital, but in the home, which is where it was most critical and so that was what created MedCorp. And so MedCorp today, we have developed a patch-worn device that's worn on the chest that measures core body temperature within clinical accuracy. Um, of, uh, within clinical accuracy, So it's, it's a continuously worn device and we can detect infection within about 15 to 20 or detect the presence of a fever, which is an early indicator of infection within about 15 minutes. Um, which obviously in the current environment that we have is is incredible. (laughs) Um, And so MedCorp now purely operates as an R&D business where we are very much dedicated to developing um, a range of wearable technologies that very much use that as our platform piece of technology. And uh, there are multiple um, variations of that and that build on, obviously, that also piece of technologies that are in the pipeline for the monitoring and management of patients in the home and also in the hospital. Um, and then there's MeoPlay, uh, which a lot of people look at me and I've very much been pigeonholed in the in the medtech space for quite a while now. And to to come out with a baby product company as of four years ago, in parallel to a quite a deep tech medical company, was, was quite was quite a shock to I think a lot of people. Um, but I think in my mind it makes perfect sense. Um, in terms of how I was progressing as a very young founder of quite a substantial tech business, um, I found myself getting, I guess, stuck in the corporate world or, or having to perform roles that were very much way beyond my experience. And I'd taken myself off the tools of designing and creating products and was assuming a very much a CEO operational's role. And that was not my core strength. I did not have the training. I was a very young uh, engineer that had actually never been a manager in a business. I, I, I resigned from full-time work to pursue MedCorp after only spent two years as a junior engineer in the industry. So I Meoplay came out as a a need for my sister. I wanted to create a product for her, but it was much more of a creative outlet for me to kind of balance that stress of not doing what I loved the most, which was creating. And as a result, I started designing a product for my sister, which was purely just a gift at the time because I couldn't find anything for her. As a behavioral neuroscientist herself and having her community of of medical mothers around her, we started exploring that product and looking at existing ranges on the market that were incredibly toxic using really um, unreliable materials. And so from a medical background, we could see very easily how we could make a huge difference from a health and developmental learning point of view in the infant space. Um, and it was a really creative and fun process for us. And so that was really important to kind of keep my my head on my shoulders a little bit, but also kind of reignite the mojo that you can lose over 10 years of, of you know, digging deep in a tech business that, you know, medical devices take 15, 20 years to get on the market. And so those wins are few and far between. So the only way to really generate that momentum was to, have something like Meoplay kicking on the side where I could be using the knowledge of that market and also using the medical knowledge that we had within our teams um, of doctors and scientists to, to create a range of products that not only provided a non-toxic option for parents, but it was also the, the you know, the first range of a hundred percent antibacterial infant teething products and, and developmental learning products. And I guess, at the core, for me, I don't like to define myself as med tech or or baby, it's it's about creating products that genuinely make a positive in impact and a positive difference to to customers and to end users and are really solving problems. And that's what the two businesses have have done in
2: parallel. You've managed to navigate taking your products to the international market, which is incredible. You've had a lot of success in Silicon Valley. Can you tell us, a little bit about that experience and what happens when you head overseas to do business? I mean, how do you do it and what have you learned in doing that? So, yes, I get asked quite a lot about Silicon Valley,
1: especially from the tech space point of view. So, and I'll I'll kind of answer your question, I guess, in two parts. Uh, Given that MedCorp is a very different commercial Stage and is a very different commercialization industry in comparison to to a product uh, consumer product brand that is Meoplay. Um, for Silicon Valley, there's... And I was having a conversation with Alicia about this last week, actually. Um, you know, so often we hear about the incredible startup ecosystem that is Silicon Valley. And we quite often want to see and learn from that and understand how do we replicate that here in Australia? Um, and how do we, you know, generate that, that kind of beautiful culture that has enabled so many startups to be successful in Australia so we can, you know, grow our own local economy. And for me, Silicon Valley was an incredible experience and it made me understand why so many businesses
2: leave Australia.
1: Uh, and that sounds terrible to say, um, but I'll give you the reasoning behind it. Is that in Australia we are so risk averse? Um, it is a part of our culture through and through that we we will never go into a, a room full of investors and pitch an idea. Um, our idea has to almost be proven before we do that. Um, purely because that's the way in which we're raised. That's the way in which our culture works. We don't we don't have that showman salesman culture. Um, it's very much that proven. Modest, um, almost conservative approach in in that commercial capacity, which is brilliant to be completely honest, because we don't really back things unless we're pretty confident it's going to be a winner. Whereas when I went to the states, oh. It was really different. It was people standing up in tech competitions with an idea, trying to raise ten million US <laughs> as an opening raise. And I was literally sitting there, just dumbfounded. Um, I was sitting there going, "I've been working on a piece of tech for you know six years straight. I've proven the tech works. I've got you know data. I've got prototypes. I've got all of that. And here are these guys in the same tech competition, standing up there trying to get ten million US in capital." to build a proof of concept prototype. And that Amazing. just blew my mind. <laughs> and it was before I'd even opened my mouth and before I had even talked about my technology, um, obviously all the judges and the investors had a had a bit of a, a kind of a, a pamphlet, I guess, on each business or a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, a quick 10 points, not a slide deck per se, but they had a bit of background information on who was in the room. And we had a morning tea kind of break. I hadn't even got up on that stage and pitched yet. And I had a group of the investors that were sitting on the the Shark Tank panel is the best way to to describe that um, come up to me and they said, you're Australian. And I said, yes. And they said, you're a female. I've gone, well, I mean, it's good that that's evident when you look at me. uh, Thanks (laughs) for that. Um, (laughs) And they said, yes, yeah, your tech must work. And that was a really weird concept. It was gone. yeah, you're a shoo-in. You've got this in the bag. You're going to win this competition. And I was like, how, how, how is that a thing? It's gone because Aussies don't pitch things that don't work. Um, mm-hmm. And Aussie females definitely don't pitch things unless they're 100% certain they're going to be successful. And that was just such a weird concept for me. Is I, had never, I never thought that the Australian cultural reputation kind of went that far. And in America, it really very much is, is that, you know, is that mentality is Australians are not the, not the salesman. We do not back anything unless we're really confident in it, which makes us a great investment opportunity because we've already done the internal like slaying of our own insecurities Um, so that we're not about to go stand up there and, and, and have egg on our face and, and not deliver on something. And I think the female, um, point of view is also really valid is that as women, we we tend not to back ourselves fully. And so that is another layer that just compounds that in terms of if you're standing there as a female tech founder from Australia, that that you've got a pretty good chance that you've got what it's made of to actually see this through because there's a good chance you've already actually done it Um, because you wouldn't be standing there otherwise because we don't have that Ungrounded, unfounded confidence. I think um, so. That was really, really interesting. And and immediately, I obviously from that whole experience, we we did end up winning some seed funding from that, which was was great. Um, and but that whole experience to me immediately just just shone a light on the Australian culture and how we and how it is so evident why businesses leave Australia to go and be commercialised and be successful in in the states and other countries. Because in Australia, it is harder. Um, Hands down, it is harder. We do have that beautiful underdog cultural, like supporting the Aussie battler. But as soon as you show signs of success, you tip over into the tall poppy syndrome and people will start to tear you down. And that's something I think every single founder of a business who has started to show signs of success has experienced here in Australia.
0: What an amazing insight into what happens to a startup internationally and how wonderful to hear you talk about it with all of your learnings in such a frank fashion and, you know, giving us insights that the majority of us would never know what I wanted to do was potentially switch to Play. and the reason that I would like to is because I feel as though a lot of our listeners uh, potentially have side hustles or, you know, there are there are many people at the moment that have products that they would really like to get out on the market as we're all and have been this year in lockdown at different times. There are a lot of fantastic ideas coming from, from women and from female founders we're seeing, especially in the future women community coming through. You started Meoplay to create a gift to get back on the tools, but it has been and it cannot be ignored that it is now a wildly internationally successful baby brand. Why do you think that your products have been so successful? Did you have any experience in the industry before you started? No,
1: that's actually probably been the hardest, the hardest thing for me um, is I don't have children, yet I own a baby product brand. So trying to get credibility from a marketing angle as somebody who doesn't have have children, and I'm very open about that. Um, it's really challenging. Is Why would you buy from Jackie Savage, who is a 31-year-old tech founder that doesn't have kids, when I can buy from a mum that started up business out of the home and she pours her heart and soul into it, I want to support a local business. And that's why my sister features so heavily in the brand. And by all means, my sister has having the children and being a developmental learning and neurobehavioral scientist, it's so important to have her involved and to have her insight. And that has always been, I think, the success behind MedCorp and Meoplay is that I don't put myself in the product. I don't design a product for me. Is that I think what I do well and what you need to do well as a founder of a business is, I think they call it foundersitis is where you've got the, the crazy tunnel vision for a product. And so you can't see anything outside that that tunnel. And you don't regularly or readily listen to, to people who have views that might contradict your own views because you're so locked onto it. Um, and so for me, I think I started a little bit like that, but I got that ripped out of me pretty quickly when I brought on advisors. <laughs> and I was very young when that happened. So that was always something that was I was aware of or something that I knew I had to be very self-aware that I wasn't getting too locked into an idea and designing for me and what I thought was right and that I surround myself with people who know more than me, but I also make sure I break it down and know who my actual customers are. And that was a big learning for me was understanding who my end users. So in product design, you have your end users and we design for the user. And a lot of times people put themselves as the user and they're like, I want to design for me. I like these aesthetics. I like this genre. I like leather this and all of that because I like that. And I'm probably the demographic that will purchase it. Um, where in actual fact, the end user might not be your customer. So by example, I think this is probably the most critical thing for anybody who's developing a product and turning it into a business. If you get this bit wrong, you're setting yourself up for absolute failure, or also reworking an entire range of product. So I'm just going to show by an example. For MedCorp, our end users are patients, but our customers, we have four customers. The customers are the people who are actually going to pay it and who are the ones who are going to make the purchasing decisions. So within MedCorp, we have the four-part customer base, but I'm designing for a patient. So who do I listen to? And we, I learned this very early as I designed 100% for the end user, being the patient. And then when we went and started getting advice on how we commercialize it, that's where the entire product got ripped apart. And we started from scratch all over again. So we redid two and a half years of development when we learned that our four customers were number one government, being Medicare. They reimburse everything. They are the number one payor in the healthcare industry. The second is the healthcare facilities. So making sure you're communicating with the hospitals and understanding how and what they want to see within their healthcare system and what's going to be their purchasing decisions on allowing that product to come into their facilities. The third is either your, your healthcare professionals being your nurses and your doctors, because they actually have to set it up. They have to educate people how to use it. And then you have your patients. And that was really, really critical. The entire device changed dramatically based off the fact that we had to satisfy those four customers. And then for MioPlay, play, it was the same. It was, I'm designing for the baby, to, you know, provide a superior developmental learning tool that, you know, really triggers all of those behavioral neuroscience kind of elements and that developmental learning kind of stimulation. I want it to be 100% non-toxic. I want it to be antibacterial. I want it to be doing quality materials. But then I'm actually looking at who's buying it is the mums. And if they're buying it in a store, it's the retailers and the distributors as well. And so... Changing the way in which we design products to do that was really evident in Meoplay. And I think a lot of people look at Meoplay and they see immediately beautifully designed products that are aesthetically very pleasing And they definitely are, and I'm not going to discredit that. And a lot of our purchases kind of come from, oh, that looks pretty, let's buy it. And they might not fully understand the science that goes behind everything we do. And we are just full science and healthcare at our very core until they've kind of already bought into the product and are reading more information about it. But the reason for that is I spoke to distributors and retailers before I would started designing the range of products. And they said, this is great, but you need to allow 80% of your budget for marketing. And I thought that was just absolutely insane. They've gone, you are a small ma- small brand in a very, very competitive and flooded market. How are you gonna stand out? And I was like, well, nothing looks the way and like, I, love, I have a very unique style when it comes to design. Everything I do looks very organic and very Scandinavian in that way. So there's obviously I have an aesthetic that I like for how I design. And I knew there wasn't a lot of that in the market at the time. So I thought, well, if I have to spend 80% on on marketing and communication to get our brand out there, why why don't we build that in to the product? And when I say build that in, that's where the aesthetics became so important. I knew I could do really high quality photography. I knew I could design a product that was different and would catch people's eyes. So the aesthetics and the actual visual design of the product became incredibly important because it then built in a lot of my marketing a lot more people would click on something that was really pretty and aesthetically quite unique and different and modern in the baby industry as opposed to if they clicked on something that hadn't had that attention but has exactly the same benefits as our product did, it would then become us spending a lot of money to get them to click on that and then to learn about that. Whereas I've took the strategy of let's build aesthetics and make that a real priority for the business. And then once they're in there, they'll then learn about why we've actually created the way we have and all the science and the health that goes behind it. And that was really, really important.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a message from our partner, Oz Industries Entrepreneurs Program.
2: The Entrepreneurs' Programme can get you from where you are to where you want to be. Our team of independent business experts can help you bring your ideas and innovations to life. We've got the tools and the networks to get you on the way. And you may be eligible for funding to make it happen. To find out how the Entrepreneurs' Programme can help you take your business to the next level, visit business.gov.au forward slash EP or call 132846.
0: Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. There's a price point to suit all budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com.
2: Welcome back to Next Generation Innovators, where our guest today is Jackie Savage from Medcorp Technologies and Meoplay. It's amazing to hear you talk about this because it does sound like you value the input of of a lot of other people and you're bringing in all of these different perspectives. But you've been a solo founder across all of these businesses. Was that an active decision? Did you ever think I should bring on a partner or, you know, I can't do this alone?
1: Oh, every day. Um, I... (laughs) I uh, never wanted to be a solo founder. Um, no, I don't think anyone wants to be solo in this journey. Um, I have within MedCorp. I did, I did bring in um, co-founders and tried to make that work. Um, but having, I think the thing that you need to remember is, I was 21 when MedCorp started. So the people I was bringing, I was bringing in were, call you know, friends of mine that I went to uni with. And you know, bringing someone who's 25 or 24 into a medtech startup as a CTO position um, is really challenging because obviously they have their own career pathways. But you're still so you're growing so much in your 20s. So you know, I was very much born this way. I always knew I was going to create my own business. I always knew this is where I was going, and I was very sure of myself and very confident in that. And I was very fortunate to have that passion um, and to have that clarity of where I wanted to be. And that was, um, to me, probably the biggest learning was that a lot of people don't have that. So you might, you know, bring people in as, you know, co-founders and then, you know, 18 months down the track or 12 months down the track, they're like, you know what, I'm not cut out for this. And I actually want to go overseas and work somewhere else. Um, and, And you've got to be respectful of that. And I think you've got to, you know, for me, I'm incredibly grateful and very lucky to have, have the focus and the, the vision that I do have and, and to be so sure of that this is the path I want to be on. I think there's also positives to being a single founder, um, especially if you do you know, run the business in the way that I did, that I managed to bootstrap a lot of MedCorp um, through, through play, And it gives you a lot of flexibility. And it gives you the, in some in some cases it gives you a lot of flexibility. In other cases, you kind of sacrifice a huge amount for the businesses. But it um it gives you the opportunity to really really be you know the very very definition of agile, is that if you're we use all profits from Mia are donated to MedCorp. So we we have a entire commercial line under our you know. Under the business umbrella, we have a consumer baby product range that
2: funds funds all of Medcorp's R and D. I love hearing you talk about this stuff because you are so sure-footed, and it seems like you know exactly what you want, you know exactly how to get there. And I'd sort of wonder what sort of challenges you've come across in finding the right balance of people to bring your vision to reality to pick who you're going to bring along on on the ride with you? Because your personality is very strong and, it's, you know, you are so sure-footed. So how do you balance that out with the team that you have around you? Uh,
1: I'm very flattered that you think I'm so sure-footed. Uh, I think behind every decision I make, there's probably about 40 hours of me talking to all my mentors, advisors and friends to get their opinion first before I pull the trigger on anything. And so it comes off with confidence, and I'm obviously doing something good as a, business, as a leader, so that's good. But there's a huge amount of people behind me. It's not just me. And I really like to be quite transparent and honest about that. Of course, you have to have confidence in yourself to be able to do what you're doing. And you don't attract people around you unless you have a clear vision and confidence, but more importantly, drive. I think the confidence is something that comes out of that. I've never really see myself as a hugely confident person. I question myself continuously and I'm continuously outside of my comfort zone all the time. But I do have drive and I am very mm. dedicated and I work hard. And I think that just pushes all of my insecurities out of the way. <laughs> because for me, it's as you know, a CEO or a founder and a director of a business, It's it's your job to To make sure that business is successful, not put your own insecurities and fears ahead of the business. I am not the business. I'm an employee of the business, I think is a really unique differentiation to make as a founder because a lot of founders put themselves as the business. It's my business. I am the business. And as soon as you do that, you're projecting your own insecurities onto that.
2: So what then are the key takeaways for all of those people listening at home or in their cars? For those that say, I've got a really cool idea and now I just want to make a product.
1: A great idea does not make a business. Hands down is that any uh, great ideas, and this sounds horrible, are cheap, is that you can get a great idea. It may be, you know, a moment in time, but ideas are cheap. What makes a great business and what makes a successful business is that you need to create a product or provide a product and a service that 100% addresses the need of your target market. You need to be addressing a need. You cannot do a me too product and be like, I'm going to make it look cooler and then go, because you'll end up spending 90% of your revenue on marketing. And it's going to become a marketing and education piece for your customers. So number one, I would say is investigate your market, understand who your customers are, understand who your users are, you know, interview them. Facebook is an incredible tool for surveys. Anyone that's seen surveys pop up on Facebook, it's market research. And if you're going to be running a business, you should start there. And you need to be investigating what are the problems? What are the stresses? What are the issues that this target market has? Don't try and project what you think they need. Ask them what they need because then it's an instant sell. It's an easy sell and you'll spend a lot less on marketing doing that. So I, I, a lot of people get really kind of shut down when I say a great a great idea doesn't make a business and ideas are cheap. Um, but it is, it is true and it's the hard truth. And I think if we want to see more and more businesses come out of Australia and be successful, we need to be I, – I, I'd like to hope that that sharing that truth is actually going to get people thinking differently. So definitely do your research. If you're addressing a need in the market and you understand your customers and your users intimately, it's going to be a really easy sell. Another piece of advice that I would do is make sure you surround yourself with people who are going to call you out on your bullshit make sure you've got people who are going to keep you in check, like people who are really going to be, you know, put their hand up and say, hey, I don't know if this really aligns with the vision of what you've said, or I think you're shifting your brand values a little bit, which is going to be confusing to your customers, or you haven't really got a clear understanding of how you're communicating to your audience or somebody who's really just going to to call you on it, I think is really valuable because the worst thing that you can see is that, you know, the worst thing you can do, sorry, is surround yourself with people who think your idea is amazing and then you go out and you do something and, you know, we always say hindsight, twenty twenty vision... But get yourself some mentors and get yourself some experienced people who've got that hindsight and can share that with you so that you can streamline those failures or, or know what failures are coming or, or hard times are coming or what concrete is coming so that you can, you know, you have the best chance of making the decision beforehand. I think people who just offer praise and say that what you're doing is great, I think, and if they genuinely have experience, are robbing you of an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to be successful. So... Surround yourself with people who are genuinely interested in you being successful and they're the people who are going to tell you and call you on the on the bullshit. The last thing that I would say in the piece of advice is done is better than perfect. So don't be a perfectionist. I'm an ultimate perfectionist and I learned the hard way that you can't keep being a perfectionist. Get it out there. Get a, get a, you know, one product out, test it in the market. Don't commit fully to everything. Just get something out. Get the feedback. There's a reason why Companies bring out new revisions of a product every year, every two years, every three years is because they're continuously building on it. So get it out there, get the feedback because the changes that you'll make to that product based off of feedback is much, much better and much more valuable than spending hours tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and designing a product in essentially a vacuum where you're not connected with your customers.
2: Oh, that's such great advice. I, I think a lot of people are gonna get a lot out of out of what you've just said. What was your toughest day as an entrepreneur? Being an entrepreneur, it's an absolute roller coaster. So there's massive peaks and massive troughs.
1: And I know what the troughs are. I know those days, like I said, when I've eaten concrete when my face is just we've just completely crashed and burned, where we figure out we've spent two years developing a product and we haven't even really designed it for our customers or we've missed a key customer, so we tear it down and we start from scratch. Or we miss out on a government grant or a tender or a massive contract, or we end up closing a negotiation that went for two years with a massive pharmaceutical company. or there's all of those moments which are clearly the trough in the roller coaster ride, that is being a founder of a startup. But there are moments in time and you know in those moments that that passes. I think the hardest day, and this is being incredibly honest, the hardest days are the days where you genuinely run out of energy. It's where you, nothing bad necessarily has happened, but you're stagnant, like nothing's happened. So there's no measure of progress. You're stuck in what could feel like months of one step forward, three steps back or not even moving at all. I think when you're on the roller coaster ride, you you have at least a gauge that you've come down, that you know that there's movement, that you know you're moving through the motions in the cycle and that you pass through that and we'll fix it. And there's a problem and there's there's a way in which we can solve it. For me, the hardest days is where it's not a problem to solve. It is genuinely, we can't move the company forward for whatever reason in the development process and it's so hard to keep breathing energy into the business as the founder and in my position that you know it's our job to be the inspiration or the leader and and provide that motivation but when you personally don't have the motivation anymore yourself you don't say that to your team and you've always got to put on that front that you are a hundred percent positive about your business every single day, and that it is great and awesome. Um, but there are times where you just you just don't. Like to be completely honest, right now in COVID, it is really challenging. You know, there's been days where it's been very challenging to jump on a call or an, or a presentation or a podcast and speak positively about our business and our journey when you feel like you're just sitting stagnant and you can't move and so for me they are actually the hardest days where nothing's happened because it is there's no there's no lever i can pull to shift it it majority of the time it comes down to just mental exhaustion and that is a, a massive topic that probably could be a podcast and its entire self is founders' mental health. So, yeah, to be honest, that's the, the truth of it. When there's nothing happening, that's the hardest.
2: What do you think um, successful founders have in common? What qualities do they have?
1: Um, I think we're all just a bit crazy. Um,
2: <laughs> a lot of people have a lot of
1: different comments on that. I think they're a lot of people say passion and commitment and all of that. And I think the passion element is something I think you're born with. Your interest and your passion, it is, you have no control over that. That's definitely something what you're born with. But so what you can really learn and what I think over time strengthens you as an entrepreneur and what I think the most important, the important thing over at the end of the day that you have is resilience. It's not a sexy term, it's not an inspirational term, but it is a hard process. And it's not hard in the sense of what you're trying to achieve has never been done before. For some people it is, but it's not hard in that respect. It's hard from the respect that you need to be able to go the distance. You need to be continuously able to pick yourself up again and keep walking. Mm. It's not like you're doing a sprint up a hill that seems impossible, it's you're just walking essentially for a really long time or jogging for a really long time. You've got to be able to just keep going, keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that just takes just sheer resilience and, and dedication to, to what you want to achieve. I think if you're somebody, so you see a lot of founders that are really attached to instant gratification and those businesses don't tend to see after a five-year life cycle, the quick wins are great and they can make a great headline, but those businesses 10 years from there might not exist anymore and there's more often than not that is the case. And that's because it is, they're making short-term success goals their priority rather than the longevity of the business. And I think that just speaks volumes to the fact that as a founder or an entrepreneur in terms of building a business, you've got to be thinking and accepting that this is a long process. And it is sometimes a really slow process and you're going to get knocked down. And all you need to do is just make sure that you have that resilience and that strength to stand back up and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And you'll do it. It's literally,
2: that is the hardest part of the work, which realistically, It's not that hard to keep going. Maybe not for you because you are a superstar. I think that's an
0: incredible, incredible piece of advice, Jackie. I Mm. think people don't realise the sheer long burn that is a startup Mm. because the way we talk about it in society is this person made a business and a year later, voila, they are a millionaire. Thanks so much for listening. Next Generation Innovators is a Future Women podcast made in partnership with Oz Industries Entrepreneurs Program and is produced by Fancy Films. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and review as it really helps people to find us. And make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode.